the Druids felt it was on the edge of water that poetry was revealed to them, and I associate rivers and river banks with the dawn of solitary wanderings. From the gable window of an upstairs bedroom of our house on the mountain, I could always see the serpent bends of the river on its horseshoe journey around the valley. A black river under grey Atlantic skies, a silver river in summer sunlight, a pure blue river in spring, a brown river in swollen winter flood. That was Brian Layden, a young writer from the hinterland of the headwaters of the Shannon, reading from Work in Progress. But it was to a different, wilder music that we prepared to set out on our voyage upstream, through Coot Hall and Knockvicker, to the islands of Loch Key. For no voyage out of Carrick and Shannon can be considered truly blessed unless it has the imprimatur of a traditional music session in Cryan's Pub, the night before departure. So, fortified against the night and a stiff breeze from the east, we strolled back to our boat, our ears still ringing with the ballad singer's rousing tale of Nancy. We woke next morning to the small sounds of the river, a river that was just as Brian Layden had described it, a silver river in summer sunlight. We nosed tentatively out through the moored boats and into the mainstream. Ahead of us the ribbon of silver water wound in its series of serpent bends through the tall reeds, whose tips were just catching the first of the early morning sun. Behind us, the town of Carrick still slept, bandaged in a blanket of mist. And we remembered the words of Liam Lawler, manager of Carrickcraft, when we took over our boat the previous evening. You have these lovely waving reeds on the side, and you look back at your wash, and the reeds are just gently waving in your wash. But underneath those reeds, there are very, very hard rock, and that's where the problems are. A little way above Carrick, where the river forks for Leitrim village and Drumharlow Lake, we anchored in midstream and cooked breakfast. Two swans cruised along the edge of the reeds and rowed out the wash as a large cruiser full of anglers came downstream at top speed. We were reminded of what Liam Lawler had told us. Yesterday evening I had my kids out on, on, on the, one of the bigger boats and of course they wanted to go faster and faster and faster. But I just showed them the wildlife on the riverside. For instance, there was a, um, two nesting swans. And you can show them that if you just slow down, the swan is not interrupted either. You're not interfering with wildlife. You don't have this huge backwash washing over this unfortunate swan's nest. Breakfast over, we crossed the wide waters of Drumhalo Lake. 
The sun was warm at our back, and the silver river had imperceptibly changed to blue, with little white horses running as the breeze freshened from the southeast. In a bay to the west, several anglers were fishing from dinghies so tiny that, from a distance of nearly a mile, they appeared to be all but totally submerged in the lively water. The rhythmic throbbing of the engine, the warm sun, the breeze riffling the water, and the wash of wavelets on our hull all conspired in a kind of subtle hypnotism, and peace descended on us like an undeserved blessing. The last of the morning mist and cloud cleared as we left Drumhalo and entered the winding stretch of water leading up to Coot Hall. At every bend of the rambling river, new vistas broke upon our vision an ever-changing kaleidoscope of sedge-lined shoreline, marshy bottomland, and green fields sloping gently upward to little wooded bluffs. Then a first glimpse over the tops of the gently waving reeds of the village of Coot Hall, splendid in sunlight, its neat and tidy houses tiptoeing down to the river's edge. We tied up near its lovely stone bridge, and watching the water lights wave and flicker under the arch, I was reminded of Brian Layden's work in progress. We knew the locations of all the bridges hidden under the grass-grown railway, one that was low and dark and offered a test of nerves. You bowed your head and entered the black mouth, and then watched iron-red stained water rise towards the rim of your Wellington boots, feeling the weight and pressure of fast-moving water press the rubber against your legs, waiting for a cold spill into your boot, if you stumbled in the deep and the dark places, where spiderwebs tickled your face, millipedes coiled in the stonework, and imagined bats hung above your head, waiting to get caught in your hair. As we came in to tie up, there was a row of fishermen on the dock, all silent as statues, some smoking pipes, their lines out, the little coloured floats bobbing about in the current like a flotilla of toy boats. I was reluctant to disturb them, but there was nowhere else to berth, so I took Liam Lawler's advice. I think common sense <coughs> plays a major, a major part well, you do get the fishermen on your dock with maybe six or seven lines out. Uh, you can approach them slowly, just indicate to them that you intend to tie up alongside. Once you come in slowly, they'll appreciate your problem, they'll pull in their lines. But if you uh, tear up and down the river, maybe at about eight knots, and you're washing their floats up and down in the water, then they don't appreciate it. They, that obviously creates a problem. Across the river from Coot Hall, on a hill above a horseshoe bay, is the home of the Cahirlick of the Shannad, Senator Sean Doherty. This is his territory. He has represented this area in Dáil and Shannad for many years and is hyper-conscious of how slow tourism has been to develop in the area. First and foremost, I would say that tourism is in its infancy, really, in the area because, uh, naturally, public awareness wasn't as strong at all times in the past as it is in, in recent periods. And, of course, this has come as a result of the decline in other traditional uh, activities. Nevertheless, though, tourism is, if you know, we can put it in another way, coming into focus. And people acknowledge for the first time that there's an extraordinary 
wealth of tourism product in the area, not just linked with the natural amenity of the river, which uh, is primary. Uh, we call it the North Shannon uh, area. The river more specifically is described as the Boyle River between uh, Drumharlow and, and the locks at Knockvicker. He is concerned at the lack of very basic amenities, facilities and general services. The river from Carrick and Shannon to Loch Key is special in, in quite a number of ways. Uh, I think the, the facility that's probably most needed on it is birthing facility. It seriously lacks birthing facility. When a boat berths, it needs to have proximity to services. Services at the birthing point and services close by, such as a post office, might I add. Good reason for keeping the one in Coat Hall uh, and Knockvicker. The other thing I would say is that there are uh, facilities like water and uh, sanitary facilities. All of that requirement uh, doesn't exist on the riverbank at the moment. Refuse disposal is not sufficient, and the discharge of boats into the river is not acceptable, has never been acceptable, but is becoming less acceptable. He is also aware that if tourism is to develop in this region, if visitors are to appreciate fully the history of the place, the whole hinterland around the river must be made accessible to them. Somebody uh, is on a cruising holiday. It's not just good enough to expect them to get into a boat in Carrigan and charge down an hour's cruise into Coot Hall and then... Uh, take a drink on board or sit out if it's a day that's suitable for that and charge on to Lockheed. It's nice to be able to pull in at locations, to know where you're pulling in to, to get to have a guide of the lands and the fields and the countryside that adjoins the river. The river is dotted all the way along the line uh, from Carrick and Shannon right to Lockheed with, with history and with features of uh, another time still existing. And this makes for an interesting holiday. For this is a hinterland rich in historical associations. In relation to heritage, <clears throat> there's no doubt about it that the parish of Ardcarn, which we will describe this parish accurately as being Ardcarn, uh, is without doubt the most historic parish in County Roscommon. And uh, that's from a heritage point of view and a historical point of view. It has uh, quite uh, an interesting uh, historical past and indeed um, a note in the census of um, 1749 indicated that the parish of Ardcarn had 1,214 Catholics and 199 Protestants living in the parish. Uh, you might have said either figure were, were, was small enough. However, uh, the fact remains though that there was a very strong influence associated with the uh, Rockingham estate. And you had names like uh, the Judges, the Boyds, the Lortons, the Fibs, the Nevilles, uh, the Kirkwoods, to name but a few. And uh, these uh, families had major impact on the social and indeed economic life of the parish. After lunch on board, we went to visit Ardcarn Church. It is set well back from the water on a hill commanding a panoramic view of this river-veined land, right away to Loch Allen 
and the Black Mountains of Arigna. One of the probably interesting uh, features of the parish is the fact that the Rockingham estate uh, is within the parish of Arcarn. And at this time, uh, if I were to focus upon an extraordinary and most uh, valuable heritage uh, project is the development of the old Ardcarn Church, which is in the ownership of the Church of Ireland and contains the Evie Horn window. In actual fact, uh, it was her first commissioning and uh, that window uh, is there in the church, priceless window. Uh, the church uh, is not used as extensively as it was in the past, regrettably because of the falling numbers of the uh, church members. But uh, my good friend Karen Garrett and Boyle and others are now involved in uh, a project to seek to restore the church. The church has uh, a very considerable uh, past. It has it goes back to to five, uh, I think five fifty three, uh, when its uh, patron Saint Saint Beod, uh, B E O D, uh, he died at that time, and right throughout the period. Uh, the, for, and for centuries afterwards, Art Carn, where the church is located, uh, was the centre of uh, a town of great Christian and religious learning. And in fact, one of the interesting things about the Art Carn church is that uh, Art Carn, Drumcliff, and Sligo, and Roscommon uh, were uh, three uh, bishoprics that. Uh, were joined together to form the Diocese of Elfin, as we now know it. Another interesting thing about it was that it was so important in church property and antiquity that uh, it had what was described as uh, a Herenek, H-E-R-E-N-E-C-K. I don't know if you've heard it before, but he was a layman mm. who was appointed for the purposes of protecting the church property. When we returned to the boat, it was well after six o'clock, too late to proceed upstream, as the lock at Knock Vicar would be closed. So we decided to walk to the Water Splash pub, not far from where we were berthed. The weather had changed now. A grey sky and a chill east wind put us in the mood for a hot whisky. We chatted with the owner, Paddy O'Regan, whose forebears had owned the pub for several generations. For him, tourism as such really began in the early 60s. And it began with a man called Larry Collins. He had a, he had a fleet of seven, of seven cruisers. Um, he did very, very well. He he built a floating jetty, first of its kind in the area, first one ever I, ever I have seen. It's still there, still being used. He uh, made a huge success of it. With the aid of Grant from Board Forge, he, he got on very well. He brought many, many visitors to the area from foreign lands. We have a beer garden outside here at the, at the side of the house. And on, on a summer's evening, you'd hear the chirping of, of the different languages from different nationalities. It would sound like birds singing in the bushes. It was all so new to us. We hadn't heard this before. And it, ha it has continued since. In Paddy's estimation, Coot Hall's big attraction for tourists, then and now, is its very smallness. Because tourists came from large towns and cities in, in different countries, and they wanted to come to a country village where they could meet the country people, talk to them at... at, at at the public bar, so to speak, hear their, their life story, how they lived, how they got on, how they made their money, particularly the bachelors. They, they enjoyed talking to the bachelors, and the bachelors were fascin fascinated by talking to, to those people, particularly to the lady folk, because they, 
it wasn't customary then for the lady folk to come into a public bar, particularly the local lady folk didn't come in at all. There were snugs in all the little bars for the lady folk, but they didn't come in. But now that mould or tradition has been broken, and uh, all ladies, at fair and dear, so to speak, they all come into the public bars and they all mix with, with the men folk, and it's 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 more of a get together, and it's 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 a, a pleasure to 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 serve with the, on them and so forth. Paddy O'Regan has seen the metamorphosis in tourism from those lean pre-60s days to the relative boom of today. One feels that, for him, as for others here, sophistication might be a bad thing. Yes, it made a huge difference to our business here. Everything boomed. Everything got, got, got off the ground, so to speak, because everybody dressed up and came out on, a, on, on the weekends, Friday, Saturday and Sunday night. Before that, if they came out, they didn't bother to dress. But now they knew they were going to meet strangers, they were going to meet other people that would be already dressed. And then music crept into the bars as a result of all this. You had tradition, and then the foreigners loved the traditional music and singing and Irish dancing and all that. That was new to them, and then they could come here freely and uh, see it for 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 no um, uh, cover cover charge. It was free in the bars, and everyone came to see everybody else, and everybody enjoyed it. It was like one big happy family all together. So um, it all started with the river. The river was got the whole thing moving, and it's 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 um, booming ever since. What? While he would not like to see his native place over-commercialised, Paddy was adamant that... It's not like the Norfolk Broads, that they're not bumper to bumper on the river here. There's any amount of space, huge amount of space, and not need enough for boats, if you like, for the amount of water that's available. We were cooking dinner on the boat that evening, but promised to return to the pub after we had eaten to hear some traditional Irish music. Before leaving, I could not resist asking how the water splash had got its name. The genesis surprised me. It was always known as O'Regan's. And when I went on my honeymoon to the Jersey Islands, we stayed at different hotels and there were coach tours from the different hotels to other night spots. So we went to this particular night spot and it was called the Water Splash. And we enjoyed it very much and it was a grand place and so forth. So we thought that we, we'd been on the river, so to us, that we'd change our name if we ever modernised our, modernized our premises. After dinner, we sat out on deck and watched the slow drift of the river, luminous under a clear sky, bright with stars. And, drifting out from the water splash up the road, came the first music of the night, plaintive, tremulous, music from another world, another time. And that music lured us away from the river and up to the water splash again, where the session was now in full swing. The hills and rivers and lakes here straddle three counties, Roscommon, Leitrim and Sligo, a hinterland whose population has been decimated by the curse of emigration. And... To round off the session, Paddy O'Regan's wife, Dimpner, cheered us with an old, sad song about that very curse. On jockey to Arun Mahri, Arun Mahri, Arun Mahri, On jockey to Arun Mahri, and on go cheer. 
Early morning on the river, with little wisps of mist still clinging like remnants of tattered lace to the trees and bushes along the bank. The first boats were already underway. Soon we were underway ourselves, heading north against the slow, strong current. Less than a mile above Coothall Bridge, the river enters Oakport Lake. We crossed the northeast side of the lake and watched the early morning sun reflected in the windows of Oakport House, set in wooded parkland on the western shore. Soon we were out of the lake and entering what is known locally as the Boyle River, a lovely wooded stretch where trees and shrubs overhang the water on either bank. In places where centuries of winter floods have eroded the bank, old trees still grow directly out of the water. Just below the old stone bridge at Knockvicar, some early morning anglers are casting their lines from the quayside, and little beaten paths lead out of the trees to the water's edge a scene described by Brian Leyden. Following the fishermen's paths down to the last part of the river, to the lake, studying the grass-capped ledges, with the dangers of edging too close to the deep turnholes drummed into our heads, a couple of pike fishermen's boats tied up at the mouth of the river. Above Knockvicar Bridge, on the north shore of the river, is the 200-year-old Georgian mansion, Riversdale House. Set on a bluff, surrounded by ancient trees, it is in a perfect state of preservation, thanks to its present owners, John and Tina Burke. They farm extensively and run a farm guesthouse, mostly for continental anglers. Riversdale was once the home of Hollywood actress Maureen O'Sullivan, but the Burke family have been there now for nearly half a century. John remembers when tourism on the river was very much in its infancy. When I was a boy, uh, going back 30 years ago, uh, if we heard the noise of a boat, our house now is 100 yards from the river, and we'd be making hay with my father in the field, and we would run down, run as fast as we could, to see a boat passing, 
And if we've got one look at this cabin cruiser going by, now that might be one boat every three weeks or every month, and we'd be talking about it for the rest of the day. And the Irish people, maybe it was uh, the fact that they didn't have too much money in those days, but they didn't use the river. Then the Continentals came, the Germans and the French and uh, people from all over the world began to use the river. And suddenly they taught us how to appreciate what we had ourselves. And in the same way, that's what I find about the tourists that come to our house. They have such appreciation for what we have for nothing that it's actually, from the children's point of view, it's a great education. We find that it's, it's really good for them, you know. The accent at Riversdale, as throughout the whole area, is on the natural. The grounds uh, are unspoiled, as you can see. Uh, they're absolutely natural with rhododendron and copper beech and uh, a monkey puzzle planted by Maureen O'Sullivan in August 1988. And um, we're very happy that the house and the grounds are, you know, uh, unspoiled and present this natural image that we think is so unique about Ireland, uh, so unique to Ireland. John Burke is one of the founders of the very successful agri-tourism group, Una Vaughan. One of the fascinating things about Lachie is the abundance of history and legend that's attached to it. Uh, I can speak about Trinity Island and the Premonster Tension Abbey that's there, the White Cannons, and also uh, McDermott's Castle Island, which, in actual fact, we have based our tourism group on the Una Vaughan we call our agritourism group Ona One uh, Agritourism Group, and um, we consider that it's uh, such a beautiful name and such a beautiful love story attached to it that uh, we find it's going to attract more people to book holidays through our agritourism group. Uh, we use this um, chance to give boat trips to the guests who come to our group uh, while we have the song and story narrated for them and sometimes a song played on harp on the boat while they're being tripped around Loch Key by the Unawan Castle Island. Vicar Lock is the clearing point for all craft leaving the Boyle River for Lock Key. The old lock gates are still operated manually by Porig Lynch, the lock keeper. I talked to him as he slowly swung the gates, behind him the waters of the weir falling like molten silver in the summer sun. He talked of first-time river sailors. The only time I've seen a boat in a, in, a, in a picture or on a postcard or on television or whatever you have and a lot of them are very nervous and, of course, they're going to make mistakes. And uh, just there today, a boat came up, four Swiss people on it, and they got stuck on forward. They couldn't get reverse. Now, they didn't, thankfully, they didn't do any damage. But they were quite nervous by the time they got into the lock. 
But I ended up bringing them into the lock. I was so nervous I wasn't even, even able to drive in. But Porrick has endless patience and a sense of humour. He appreciates how important that first time is. But the first time is always the best. Because you'll always remember the first time. If you, if you do it 200 times after that, you'll always say, do you remember the first time we came along here? Remember the mess we made of it? Lockkeeper brought us in or he told us what to do or somebody fell off or we lost the engine of the dinghy or lost the dinghy itself. Some little thing that... Some interesting little thing happened. I was here one day, letting a boat in. I was coming in, a German couple, a young German couple. We've been very careful, really been very careful. The man was driving the boat and his wife came out and threw me the front line. I went back to the stern and held the line there. And she tried to throw the line across a bollard. First attempt she missed, second attempt she missed. Third attempt she missed, but she overreached and actually lay her hand on the wall. The stern of the boat started moving out and she started screaming. <coughs> now, I couldn't make it very dramatic and say I went back and I, I grabbed her before her feet left the boat, but I didn't. I went back and I held her wrist. And a few seconds later, her feet left the boat because she, the boat had gone out that bit. So she was, getting, she was fairly loud at this stage. So her husband came out and looked. The next thing, he ducked back into the boat, came out of the camera, took a quick, took a quick picture, and pushed the dinghy over to her. I let, I let her down into the dinghy. <laughs> she wasn't at all happy about it, I tell you. Some of the really nervous sailors are reluctant to negotiate the relatively narrow arch of the bridge at Knockvicker. They need to be piloted. They'll come as far as the bridge, and they'll stop there, and they'll see the path as far as the lock, and they'll walk up here to me and they'll look around and look and look and look and eventually they'll approach me and tell me about a boat they have and it's their first time and it's the same story over again for me. So I'll offer to go down to bring up the boat for them. And nine times out of the ten they say, oh yes, please. This stretch of the Boyle River around Knockvicker Lock is one of the great places for pike. In the deep, dark brown pools above the weir, Giant pike cruise and scavenge and try to evade the lures of the anglers who have come from Germany, Switzerland, France and England to catch them. One of the biggest pike ever caught was taken here in 1900 by a local police constable, P.J. O'Connor. It weighed 53 pounds, was 53 inches long, with a girth of 27 inches. Unfortunately, before the catch could be authenticated and enter the record books, the head was eaten by Constable O'Connor's dogs. With Porrig Lynch, pike fishing is strictly a sport. Usually I fish with a light line, because the lighter the line and the heavier the fish, the more fun you can have. Because you get a big pike on and you have a light line, well, the chances are you're going to lose them very fast if you're not very careful. So the fun is trying to get him in. And to get him in, doing little, as little damage to him as possible, because I let him go. Because uh, I see so many people that take out everything. Everything they get their hands on, just for show. He agrees that, while for the Irish people, pike has traditionally not even been considered an edible fish, it is highly prized as a rare delicacy by continentals. I know on the continent, in Germany, uh, pike <laughs> is a very, very big thing. You go into any restaurant in Germany, you're paying in excess of £6 a pound just for the pike. With the restaurant at the Yacht Club in Coote Hall featuring pike on its menu, 
I wondered if Porig would sell his catch to them. It would be a very interesting offer, but uh, he would be talking about a commercial thing there, and if I go fishing for a pike, I go fishing for fun. That's all. In the past few years, there's been a noticeable increase in the numbers of other types of fish. Trout, there's plenty of trout, plenty of trout. Trout, there's a big build-up trout the last few years. And uh, I think it was the second or third trout I ever caught was a seven-pound trout, which I was very happy for. Um, it was better insofar as that um, I was fishing for a pack at the time and landed this trout. So it came to me as a great surprise. But trout fishing on Lock Key has improved the last few years simply because the number of pikes diminishing, because the continentals on the boats are taking out a lot of the pike. Peter Klein is from Germany and has been fishing at Nockvicker for many years now on his annual holiday. If I come to Ireland, I have my, in Germany we say, oh, uh, I get out of work, I feel, I get another feeling here. I can fish if ever I want. I stay on the boat. I can catch fish. I can catch no fish. And the north of the Shannon system, I think, is the best part of Shannon system. The lock here on Nokwika is from what say, Landschaft, the sea, Lockheed, is very nice for us. The Lockheed, you stay on the lock in the evening, only you can hear some birds, a cow, and you cannot hear something. Peter gave us a traditional German recipe for cooking pike. In Germany we have to cook and pike uh, with wine, white wine. You bring uh, what is cutlet, pieces of pike, and you bring what is speck schinken from pork, smoked pork, with uh, what is fat. Yes, and put it on the pike and bring it to the oven, back oven, and uh, a little bit of wine on the ground and with a deckle, uh, close it and bring uh, for a half an hour and you take the flare from uh, pork meat, wine, and you can make from the wine a good uh, sauce, very nice sauce. It's delicious. You can get it in Germany in expensive restaurants. Peter also liked the social life in the hinterland of Nockvicker. All the pubs are very old and very good. And we like the music in the pubs. That night, Parik Lynch took us to sample the Seishun and the Bogside. 
a pub quite literally in the middle of Bogland, between the two great lakes, Loch Key and Loch Allen. Next morning, we went over to Arigna, on the mountain above Loch Allen, to meet Brian Layden's mother in her farmhouse built into the side of the hill. This is Turlock O'Carrollan Country, written about so lovingly by Brian Layden. Or lowering the line of sight, we could follow the path of the river, virgin banks of yellow gorse on either side, to the place where it met the lake, lying miles off in thick haze. Loch Allen, largest lake on the country's longest river in our geography lessons, starting back there in the purple Kulka Mountains, stretching more than three miles from Cory Strand at one end to the roaring sluice gates of Ballantra at the other, where my father told us he had to put a bag over an ass's head before he would walk the boards over the thunder of falling water spilling over the sluice gates. Big timber gates with iron cogwheels and pulleys and concrete fish passes for the leaping salmon, the wary trout and the shoaling bream. At the top end of the lake, safely above the strong currents of the sluice gates at Ballantra, lay O'Connor's Island, a tangled, woody place offering the challenge of strange territory. And O'Connor's Island waiting up ahead. Coming out on black sand flats, the lake far out, the water level well down after the lowering of the sluice gates, releasing the flow to the generating station farther down the industrial Shannon. The leaning fence posts cut from alder and willow, visible again, risen from the lake. Fish baits and green nylon lines hanging on the rusted barbed wire. We navigated the bridge of land that welded the island to the shore in summer rolling up trouser legs to wade the final shallows and then pressing through the thick, neglected undergrowth to a ruined royal house at the centre of the island where we saw huge water rats, the remains of a steamboat and a monkey puzzle tree. Our journeys outward were getting longer, the natural mysteries mingling with the words of our school books. On our last night on the river, we ate at the yacht club in Coot Hall. Chef Louis Smith talked to us about his customers' preferences. We find that uh, some of our best customers would be Swiss on the river. They, um, they like their food and they're prepared to spend money on food that um, a bit of thought and care has gone into and further they'll get something different. They like to try some of our local products as well. I take uh, pike from the river, and I would bone it out, and I'd serve it with a lime and ginger sauce. And they love to take something that's come directly from the river itself. When I get in the pike, I might get in three or four big ones at a go, and uh, I'll fillet them and skin them. And then I could spend up to an hour taking out a Y-shaped bone that's in the fillet. 
because it's vital if you're going to serve pike that the customer doesn't have any bones in it. They don't want to be battling with the bones. So it's the chef that does the work. And then I would have it, I would serve it in about uh, two inch length strips by an inch wide. And I'd give maybe three of those. And I would dip it into a little flour and beaten egg and pan fry it. And then I would serve it, I'd, I'd make um, a fish stock from the bones of the pike. And then I would reduce that down with cream and finish it with crushed um, Australian ginger and fresh lime juice. And uh, it's nice and tarty and the contrast of the ginger. But the flesh of the pike, which is funny, it's, it's a nice meaty flavour to it. It's, um, compared to some pike fishes, they lack a little flavour. There just tends to be a little flavour in the pike. It's very hard to describe it, and it's, it's not watery or insipid, you know. And when you look at the pike, it's such... Some people think it's ugly, but I actually think it's beautiful because it's got a fantastic um, bone structure. Louis is a Dubliner. He still lectures in Carl Brewer Street, but decided to run a restaurant in Crude Hall because... Between here and Athlone, there is actually, on the River Shannon, there is no restaurant that puts attention to detail, that will make, you know, that, that the emphasis would be on a variety of fish, sauces that would do game, uh, uh, and that would have the, the attention to presentation. Next day, as we cruised back downstream to Carrick, we found ourselves remembering the lovely O'Carrollan country around Loch Allen and Brian Layden's ancient local recipe for pike, a recipe that truly reflects the native attitude to that fish. And then you get a large go of butter, and you butter up the pike, and you can use some herbs, maybe a little bit of parsley or that, and when you have your pike nicely buttered up, you wrap it in tin foil, and then you put it in the oven for about an hour, and then when you remove the pike from the tin foil, you throw the pike in the dustbin and you eat the tin foil. <laughs> <laughs>